Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, as I start the show today, uh, the first thing I want to do is give a shout out and a thanks to the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, who uh, very graciously filled in for me uh, yesterday while I had a very early appointment that I couldn't miss. Uh, it was a terrific show, good discussion. And of course, as she's done on a few other occasions when she's filled in, Tamar was terrific. Uh, hosting the show, so I'm really grateful to her. And although she usually does appear with uh, us on Tuesdays because she did the show yesterday, uh, she is going to go do her work for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution today instead. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. There are issues bubbling up at the state capitol as the legislature continues its session um, that include election bills that uh, are uh, still being debated down there. Citizens' arrest is a continuing issue down there. Uh, Governor Kemp is dealing with an issue uh, around his plan to expand Medicaid in a, a limited way. We'll talk about that. And then we're also going to turn to issues that relate to 2022. Believe it or not, we're already getting set for the 2022 election cycle. And the big news, as you heard at the top of the show, is that David Perdue has filed paperwork uh, to uh, save a place for himself should he decide in the next few weeks whether to challenge Raphael Warnock for the seat that Warnock won. Just remember, for two years, because he's filling out the last two years of the uh, seat that Johnny Isaacson gave up uh, when he became too ill to continue. So we have a lot to talk about on the show and just the right panel to do it. Uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, State Senator Jen Jordan, who is back with us. She's senator from the 6th District. Jen, it's really a pleasure to have you back. I always like to point out to people, you have this very sprawling district. I mean, you're uh, portions of Atlanta, which include you're in Vining, Smyrna, Buckhead. You've got Sandy Springs. Uh, it's a, you've got a lot of territory to cover in that district, Jen. I do, but um, but it's some of the best parts of, of Metro Atlanta and some of the best people. So I'm, I'm just happy to represent it. Spoken like the person who represents that district in the state Senate. We're also joined today by Representative Chuck F. Stration, who I always like. You're, it's District 104 up there in Gwinnett County, Chuck. And uh, when we introduce you, I think I'm usually right in kind of saying the best way to define your district as say it sort of centers in Decula and spreads out in all directions from the city of Decula. Fair enough? That's right. I'm all, uh, district I represent all in Gwinnett County, and I tell folks it's halfway between Atlanta and Athens. So uh, easy, uh, easy <laughs> area to understand when you hear that. Um, glad to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Also, increasingly dangerous territory for a Republican like Chuck Efstration uh, as the county turns bluer and bluer, and yet Efstration uh, has uh, done a pretty interesting job, as you've heard a number of times on the show, uh, introducing or being behind bipartisan legislation that I think has served him uh, well uh, in uh, his district up there. Uh, we also have a, a brand new panelist who I'm really thrilled is joining us today, Professor Bernard Fraga, professor of political science at Emory University. Uh, professor, we're really grateful to have you here I think, and tell me if this is a, a, an appropriate way to introduce you, uh, it's fair to say that a lot of your work focuses on you study electoral politics, uh, especially in terms of race and ethnicity in voting habits, and um, that that's been a focus for a long time of your work. Fair enough? Yeah, I think that's fair. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. And second, you know, I just moved to Georgia uh, less than a year ago, and given that I study race and voter turnout, as you said, uh, it's a perfect time to be here. National attention on Georgia, as you mentioned, will continue uh, in coming election cycles, 2022, 2024. Georgia will continue to be in the spotlight, and race and voter turnout will as well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that on today's show. Is it okay also if we mention that you have a brand new, uh, you have a brand new young one in your house? You have a two-week-old baby who... Uh, as our listeners know, we use WebEx just to see each other. We got a chance to see your little two-year-old. Congratulations. 
Two months old, yeah. uh, two week old, two week old. <laughs> two week old, you know, and he's here with um, someone, you know, our other son who's just under two years old. So got two kids in the pandemic, two under two. Uh, it's a lot, but I'm glad to be here and uh, everyone's doing great. <laughs> God, that's good to hear. Uh, all right, let's start. Chuck, uh, at 2 o'clock this afternoon, uh, Governor Kemp is holding a news conference to unveil how he wants to handle a reform of the citizen's arrest law, which really became a, a, a major focus of attention, not just in Georgia, but nationally in the aftermath of the shooting death of, of Ahmad Arbery, where the two, two, two of the defendants in, in that case a claim that that's what they were doing, exercising their uh, citizens' arrest rights because they claimed they thought that Ahmad Arbery might be responsible responsible for break-ins in the area uh, near Brunswick where he was killed. Uh, you've been an advocate of uh, reform for a long time. You've worked on it in committee. Uh, you're going to be with the governor this afternoon. I know you're not going to jump on what he has to say, but talk about how this is evolving from your point of view. Following up on the historic passage of the Georgia hate crimes law in 2020, attention really turned to repeal of the citizen's arrest statute. The committee that I chair in the Georgia House, which is the Judiciary Committee, held hearings about a repeal of that statute, what it might look like. And what we heard from law enforcement, civil rights groups, from many legislators is that there was general bipartisan agreement that a repeal was appropriate and that we needed to put some fine points in the law to deal with some very specific circumstances. Um, I think that uh, Governor Kemp's leadership on this issue, the fact that he cited it in his state of the state address was very encouraging. And I'm uh, looking forward to his announcement today. Georgia would be one of the first states in the country to repeal citizens arrest law like this. And it would allow for uh, uh, what's called detention in very limited circumstances, like uh, defense of your uh, home, defense of uh, a third party or self-defense, uh, circumstances uh, of shoplifting or theft of services, uh, an off-duty police officer, very limited circumstances where the law might be cited. But really, otherwise, law enforcement in our current environment, where law enforcement is so pervasive, they've said that they don't want citizens trying to arrest each other and take them before judges, that that's bad policy and that the law needs to be repealed. So I'm very um, uh, glad to hear this development, as you point out, in the wake of the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, where it was cited by prosecutors even initially to justify the killing. Uh, I think that this is an important thing for the state to do, and I applaud these efforts. Just from a procedural point of view, before I bring everybody else in, are we talking now about is this a two-stage effort? Is there, an, is there a reform going to be proposed of the existing legislation, or is there going to be an out-and-out -out repeal and a new bill introduced in its place? How is this going to work procedurally? Well, I can't speak for the governor's office, but the focus that we had in committee was that we were going to repeal the statute but put in code <laughs> that, that detention is permissible in circumstances where uh, we already have existing concepts in the law that would allow for that. And just, uh, you know, an example is if somebody breaks into your house, you're justified under the law if you shoot the, the person who broke in. Well, we want to provide an alternative where you can detain that person until law enforcement arrives. It doesn't make sense to say you can shoot, but you can't detain. And so uh, what I'm really getting into is the fine points of this issue, which is a very complex issue. But the bottom line is the important thing to know is that citizens' arrest will be repealed. And when you speak with law enforcement, uh, legitimate cases of citizens' arrest just don't happen uh, these days. And so this is a, uh, this is fits with our times, and it was highlighted, the urgency was highlighted uh, in the wake of the Ahmaud Arbery case. Uh, Jen Jordan, um, for decades, uh, there have been uh, concerns that citizens' arrest has uh, targeted black people particularly, and the Ahmaud Arbery case really brought that to light. I, I assume that this effort is bipartisan. Yeah, of course it is. Um, I will say this, though, that, um, you know, in terms of the reforms that um, Chuck is talking about, I mean, there are other places in the law where, you know, that stuff that is provided for, for example, with respect to shopkeepers and the like. Um, to be frank, if it were up to me, I would do just a complete repeal of the law. I mean, it's it's rooted in kind of vigilantism and slavery 
And um, and I think it, it is almost anachronistic um, in today's world um, where we have a police force and, and we have, um, you know, law enforcement officers who, who can detain people or who can be called to a scene. So, you know, I definitely applaud the efforts. I think it's, um, you know, we could probably do a little bit more, but look, um, we're making a, a step forward. And so, you know, I really appreciate that. Uh, Bernard, it's interesting. Jen points out uh, that, uh, in fact, I think citizen's arrest statute here in Georgia is well over 100 years old. It was, um, in many ways, initially a tool uh, under Jim Crow to allow for uh, white people to uh, detain blacks without law enforcement having to be uh, present. So it has a legacy of racist background that goes back a very long way. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, what you see, just like many of the laws that now on their face are racially neutral, is that they were passed, they were proposed, passed, enacted uh, at a time when, you know, during Jim Crow, at a time when uh, the state government and state and local officials, elected officials chosen by the people were enforcing segregation, were enforcing discrimination, and passing measures to reinforce a racial hierarchy that put whites above the black population of Georgia, despite constitutional provisions, despite the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. These laws were passed to to enforce racism. And I think that now when we're looking at them today and thinking about the effects like Ahmaud Arbery's killing, uh, you know, we have to really look at that legacy, look at that history and say, why do we need these laws in the first place? What purpose are they serving? And I'm glad to hear that there are at least some bipartisan efforts um, to to uh, investigate these laws, to change them where possible, and to really rethink these systems, again, that have that historical legacy. So, uh, Chuck Abstration, just to put a period on this uh, particular topic, um, I'm assuming with a partnership with Governor Kemp, with uh, people, uh, Democrats like a Jen Jordan saying it's about time, I assume that you don't expect there's going to be a lot of trouble getting this repeal uh, to pass the legislature and be signed into law? I, I think the model is similar to what was done on the hate crimes uh, bill. I carried, introduced and carried uh, a hate crimes law because Georgia was one of, one of only four states without that law in the books. And what we found is there was a broad bipartisan coalition of folks willing to step forward and say, this is the right thing to do. We need to do it now. And so I'm certainly hopeful, Bill, that it passes along the lines that you've outlined. And I think that uh, the coalition, particularly with the governor's support, uh, will make that a real possibility this legislative session. You're much more on top of this, obviously, than I am. You're down there every day. So are you, uh, Jen Jordan. So maybe you know about this. But are you are, is there a contingent of more conservative legislators who are mm-hmm. firmly opposed to this going through? Chuck? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I am. Um, we, ha- we haven't had a bill in committee where uh, there's been a real opportunity, I would say, to parse uh, language in the statute. In our uh, in our study committee, there was real robust discussion that took place amongst members. And what my observation has been and just my feeling is that there is an interest um, from Republicans and Democrats uh, coming together saying we need to get this passed, we need to get this done, and that it will be sufficient to get us uh, to a majority in both the House and Senate to get it passed. Jen, do you see problems getting it through the Senate? You know, you're never quite sure until something gets over here, um, but it definitely smokes people out. I mean— um, but I, I'm, mm. with, I'm with Chuck that um, I think at the end of the day, even if there are a contingency of legislators, um, you know, conservative legislators who are against it, I think that a majority of elected officials are going to be able to get it over the line, um, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and of course, um, with the support from the governor's office, um, that's going to be incredibly important. Okay, um, we will watch how that goes forward. And of course, GPB News uh, will be uh, staffing the governor's event and uh, present uh, a report on it it, it, during All Things Considered later this afternoon. Uh, Jen Jordan, I want to start with you. I want to uh, skip from the legislature for just a second and go over to the executive branch. Uh, There was a ruling from the Biden administration that I think caught many people off guard just to set it up very, very briefly, 
Uh, during the tenure of uh, Donald Trump as president, Governor Kemp asked for, applied for two waivers, health care waivers, one of which would have allowed him to expand Medicaid in a very limited way, uh, but there would be a, requ- a work requirement uh, to all the people who wanted to now have an opportunity uh, to apply for Medicaid. The Trump administration approved that waiver and a second one, um, which so far still stands. But the Biden administration just yesterday uh, said, we're going to suspend the approval of that waiver. We think a work requirement under the conditions of the pandemic is simply unworkable, and we want a chance to study it uh, better. But Jen, what does this do to Governor Kemp, who really celebrated this as a as a way to expand health care to people who can't afford it? It was kind of a, a centerpiece of his effort to uh, start providing more health care for the state. This really sets him back on his heels, doesn't it? Well, it may set him back on his heels, but actually, at the end of the day, may offer him an opportunity to actually fully expand Medicaid throughout the state so that we can we can cover more people for less. Um, you know, with respect to the waiver program and the work requirement, I mean, we were looking at hundreds of millions of dollars just for the administration of that program. Um, and we didn't even have, you know, real numbers on what that was going to look like yet. So in a lot of ways, this may seem to be a setback for the governor. Um, but I'll tell you that at the end of the day, it, it may actually end up being a, a really positive thing for the people of Georgia. Uh, I want to get Chuck Enbernard in here. And Chuck, let me let me start with you. Uh, it, it, you know that Republicans, of course, have held the line against the full expansion of Medicaid in the state, saying that eventually it would cost far too much money Uh, to have the full expansion. But this is an ongoing tug of war between Republicans and Democrats at the state capitol that Republicans obviously have prevailed upon uh, uh, since they uh, are in majority control. But do you think Jen Jordan's right that there will now be a more robust effort to a full expansion? I think Governor Kemp's made very clear his priority is reducing costs and increasing accessibility. And the tug of war I would characterize is really between Washington and Atlanta. The, um, the argument has been that uh, in Georgia, we can most effectively utilize the dollars uh, received um, uh, because we know what the, uh, what the best need or most appropriate need is for those dollars. And so I expect that the interaction with the federal government is going to continue going forward and that the governor will continue making clear his priority to increase accessibility and to address affordability in health care. It's certainly an incredibly important issue to Georgians, and I know it's a very important issue to the administration. Uh, Bernard, does a work requirement for Medicaid, does it once again raise a question about uh, uh, racial disparities, uh, suggesting that uh, having a job or some kind of community involvement, it's sort of a vague uh, concept that they've got in the waiver. Uh, does it once again raise racial questions? Yeah, I mean, the legacy of, you know, any kind of government uh, welfare program, um, healthcare related or a direct financial transfer, you know, is really tied up in, in the politics of race. We saw this in the early 90s with welfare reform, narratives of, you know, the welfare queen, which is a, a racial stereotype. You know, all of that is tied into the idea that some Americans are deserving of help and others are not. And far too often in our history, and even today, we see that the ones who are characterized as deserving of help are oftentimes, you know, white Americans, and those who are considered not deserving are oftentimes characterized as black or increasingly immigrant or non-citizen. And I think that, again, when we're looking at these pieces of legislation, we have to say, you know, are we really throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? You know, isn't it really about making sure that people have access to health care, have access to the resources they need to thrive, to drive the economy forward, to increase economic growth in this country and Georgia and the rest of the nation, instead of focusing on these requirements that, as we heard from the senator, are difficult to administer, oftentimes very expensive, and again, just reinforce this idea that there's Americans out there who don't want to work, who aren't looking for jobs in the middle of a pandemic when, frankly, everyone's just trying to survive. So I think that's an excellent point connecting this to, again, the legacy of the racial component of many of these kind of social welfare programs. Um, Of course, 
Jen Jordan, Professor Fraga takes us back to the 90s and talks about welfare reform uh, uh, being a, a, a tool of, of you know, uh, uh, disadvantaging uh, racial minorities. But we should remember that it was Bill Clinton who, in his 92 presidential campaign, in an effort to reach out and build a broader coalition, was the candidate for president who embraced welfare reform and went on as president to ensure there would be some uh, 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 significant welfare uh, reform. So we don't want to necessarily look at this as having been a partisan issue for all of these uh, decades. But, but Jen, why do you think that suddenly we're going to see some movement for a broad expansion? So I think one of the things is um, COVID. I mean, I think what we've seen is, or what COVID's actually kind of um, shined a light on is, is where we knew we had problems in terms of different areas of the state, um, mm. you know, poor areas of the state, Areas that tend to um, be communities of color, and um, you pair that with rural hospitals closing and kind of the collapse of um, of the healthcare system outside of the metro Atlanta area. You know, you can't be the best state to do business if you can't provide healthcare to workers and to the business folks who come here. Um, and that's true not only in Atlanta but South Georgia, Savannah. Columbus and the like. So, you know, I, I do think that this is a real opportunity, um, you know, for us just to kind of move forward um, and, and and kind of set a reset button so that we can get health care. We can get health care to people in Georgia. I mean, it's that simple. Chuck, uh, again, we got to get to a break, but the Biden administration appears uh, ready to up the pressure a little bit on states, the, the states like Georgia that have not done a broad expansion of Medicaid. Right now, uh, the feds pay 90% of the uh, costs of, of a full expansion of Medicaid to all uh, uh, qualified people in the state. The Biden administration appears ready to uh, go with a 100% federal uh, match. They'll pay for all of the costs. I frankly don't remember the number of years involved, but it's, I think, at least four. Is it? Is it are you, do, do Republicans still have ground to stand on in saying that this cost will cost the state too much um, looking way down the road? I think that's really been the discussion over the years. The question is, what will the federal commitment be well into the future? Also, mm. federal deficit spending has increased under uh, Democrat and Republican administrations, frankly, over the past a uh, few decades. And I think that there are some legitimate questions and concerns about that. And I'll finally just say, you know, Republicans at the state capitol in Georgia led on addressing maternal mortality where mothers needed coverage and uh, and that coverage needed to extend through birth. And, uh, and what we've really seen is a targeted effort to address specific needs that we have in the state. I expect that's going to continue irrespective of the tug of war we were discussing between Washington and the state capitol. So before I go to a break, Jen Jordan, since maternal mortality was a big issue that uh, you embraced, I'll give you a chance to uh, uh, respond to that very quickly. Yeah, I mean, look, they expanded it, and let's, let's say thank you, but they expanded it for six months. I mean, we've been pushing for a year. If you're really going to deal with maternal mortality um, rate in Georgia, you really need to cover for that year after birth. Um, I appreciate a little step forward, but you know, we've got an opportunity here to cover 100% of the cost and possibly cover 500,000 more Georgians. This seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, you know, I think we've just got to move forward. All right. Jen Jordan gets the last word on uh, the first segment of our show. Let's get to a break. And when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
State Representative Chuck F. Stration, State Senator Jen Jordan, and our first-time uh, panelist on the show, Professor Bernard Fraga, Professor of Political Science at Emory University, join us for today's show. Um, let me, Bernard, let me actually start with you on this. I think many people, and I'll be interested in if everybody on the panel agrees with this, kind of surprised by the news early this morning that uh, David Perdue has filed the paperwork to uh, uh, save a place for himself to run against Raphael Warnock in the 2022 election cycle. As I said at the top of the show, uh, Warnock is uh, filling out the last two years of Johnny Isaacson's uh, term and so has to run again in two years. I'm not sure that many people thought he would go for the Warnock seat that quickly. What And, and I'll, I'll bring you in to start on this, in part because so much of the work you do is a, a look at how uh, uh, at different voting groups and how they voted. Um, what do you, th first of all, just in general, your thoughts about Purdue maybe jumping into this race? Well, you know, so it's a bit of a surprise. There were some discussions about him um, you know, looking into a run, and my understanding is he hasn't fully committed yet. Uh, the FEC filing, which was reported, you know, yesterday night, uh, I think indicates, you know, he's setting up the infrastructure to do this. But, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, this is really a, a kind of uh, rehatching, maybe in some ways, of the, the race that we saw we just finished with. You know, we thought we were over with the election cycle. Now it's continuing again. We're going to see maybe some of the same players emerge. A Purdue-Warnock matchup would be very interesting given that, um, you know, Purdue did a little bit better than Leffler um, in the runoff and uh, in the general as well. Uh, so, you know, I think we're going to have to see what happens here. Again, you know, he's going to face a primary election. Um, he's going to face some, uh, you know, potentially some even further Trump aligned. I mean, he is aligned with president, the former president, but, you know, even more kind of conservative, even more um, kind of right-wing uh, primary candidates, perhaps. We'll see what happens. But, you know, again, the ability to begin fundraising is an important step and I think indicates that we're, again, not finished with um, this kind of closely contested, hotly contested uh, purple state of Georgia and the national scene. And uh, if Democrats want to maintain this effective majority in the Senate, it means holding on to this seat and, and we'll see what happens. Uh, Chuck, it probably is a pretty smart move because at least temporarily it freezes, I think, does it not? People like Doug Collins, who may want to jump into this race, uh, other Republicans who probably would be a little nervous of trying to take on a David Perdue. I, I agree. Uh, Senator Perdue's record in Washington and the fact that he is, I believe, the largest vote getter ever in Georgia history uh, from the um, November 3rd election last year, I think puts him in a unique position where he can, um, in, in a sense, really uh, clear the field and and, um, and begin his campaign very early if that's what he chooses to do. Of course, two years as an attorney in politics, but uh, if he decides to run, I think that uh, he could really campaign on his record and um, I think there's general agreement that there were very unique circumstances with the presidential election in November and the uh, and the runoff in January, uh, where Purdue could say that that was uh, the outcome in January was really an outlier and uh, that he'll per perform very well in November of 2022. Um, so, Jen, this could be once again the Democrats' uh, best hope for uh, uh, eventuality. I mean, if you end up with another. Republican primary in the Warnock race, uh, say Kelly Leffler thinks about jumping in, Doug Collins wants to jump in, Purdue is in there. Uh, it, it sets up, again, the kind of dynamic that was so costly uh, to Republicans in, uh, in the 2020 cycle. Well, that's what's interesting about it, because the way it was rolled out was that this is an exploratory committee he has to do this in order to start kind of looking at getting into the race. But actually, under federal law, you don't have to um, file for an exploratory committee. And in fact, most people don't. And they try to kind of keep it under the radar because they are exploring to see if there is support. So really what I think this is, is I think that this was like a big old firework use that was sent up into um, the sky to try to stop other Republicans who are looking at it, um, including Doug Collins. Um, we've heard Jeff Duncan's name mentioned. We've heard Chris Carr. I mean, there are a whole list panoply of Republicans that have um, 
indicated that they may be interested or, or may be looking at running. So I think this was trying to draw a line in the sand so that donors would not commit mm -hmm. um, to the other candidates until Purdue makes a decision one way or the other. Um, Bernard, uh, because you study elect, uh, the way in which groups uh, uh, vote, uh, demographic groups vote, uh, how significant, uh, how significantly should a David Perdue look at the outcome of the Georgia runoff election, in which we have elected the first African American United States senator from the state with an, a, a huge outpouring of black votes here? Um, how would you advise uh, any Republican to look at the potential voters uh, and, and the composition of the voting bloc? You know, so the. You know, both the runoff election and the November election in 2020 were exceptionally close elections. We have to remember that. Right now, there's debates in the state house about laws, you know, changing the election process, um, you know, eliminating no excuse absentee voting, all these other things. You know, we have to remember again that just how close these elections were. David Perdue, who got, again, more votes than Ossoff did in the November election, would have gotten to 50% outright and avoided a runoff with just about 12 to 15,000 more votes in November. If Trump would have narrowly beaten Biden, just barely beaten Biden in the state, he lost you know, by about 12,000 votes, that would have been enough for Purdue to win outright and avoid the runoff altogether. We wouldn't be even be having these discussions right now. right? So again, you know, he doesn't have to do that much better than he did last November right? in order to win. And so I think that when we're thinking about the, the demographic composition of the electorate, which was very similar from November to the January runoff in almost every way, we're talking about even in the runoff elections, elections decided by less than 100,000 votes, he doesn't have to do a lot different from what he did before in order to have a good chance of winning. Small changes in terms of who's voting, different voting blocks. I think the bigger question is whether Former President Trump is going to get involved in the election. Is he going to say, Doug Collins, you need to, you know, get in there. You need to be running in the primary against David Perdue. Is he going to be involved or even unable to stay on message if he's showing up to a rally or trying to get Republicans to turn out to vote? These are the questions that I think that David Perdue is asking now and why he's, again, I agree, trying to stick a claim, right, set off some fireworks or whatever to prevent donors from shifting attention to another candidate, perhaps a more Trump-preferred candidate going forward. Uh, Chuck, I think Bernard just raised the question that all Republicans are asking, not only in Georgia, but around the country, just how much of a presence will Donald Trump be in a 2022 election cycle? And, and although it's a broad question, it's particularly resonant today if David Perdue, one of his most loyal members of the U.S. Senate for four years, uh, in fact, does decide to jump into this race. Well, I, I think that's right. Anytime uh, you a, a party loses presidential election, you you have uh, some consideration going forward about uh, the direction of the party and what which path to take. And I think that um, that we're going to uh, we're going to see some of that. We're going to see uh, Trump loyalists uh, really talking about the previous administration. We're going to have others who are saying that the Republican Party needs to go a different direction, and that that discussion is an important one to have. And uh, historically, this may be kind of a, a bland response here, but historically, that's really not out of the ordinary. I think that uh, that the party has to uh, really identify its path forward, and uh, that uh, discussion and debate is going to take place between now and the primary, I think. And and uh, and then uh, Republicans will get behind the candidate and support them in into November of 2022. Jen, uh, before the show, we we were talking uh, uh, off air about the fact that Jeff Duncan has really been out there uh, speaking very publicly about trying to carve some kind of new path out for Republicans. He has um, defended the Secretary of State repeatedly, Brad Raffensperger, for uh, not being willing to bend to Donald Trump's wishes on overturning the results of the election. Uh, he was on CNN both last night and this morning uh, talking about the fact that it is disappointing to him to see Republicans in some of the states where uh, their senators voted for a guilty verdict in the Trump impeachment trial, especially Adam Kinzinger, uh, that it's unfortunate that their state parties uh, are uh, uh, censuring them. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by where 
just to turn the subject a little bit, the path that Jeff Duncan sees himself carving out in the uh, months ahead, because most of the Republican Party in the state seems to be firmly entrenched in the Donald Trump camp right now. Yeah, I mean, look, he is talking um, like a general election statewide candidate um, for higher office. The the problem that Duncan has is that right now, the, the, the only way you can get there is through a primary, a Republican primary in the state. And when you have congressional districts like the 14th and the 9th and incendiary figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who basically has enormous um, cachet up in these areas where these voters are, um, you know, it is very difficult for me to see um, a path, at least just in, in the short term for him, that would include any kind of higher office. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to watch, that's for sure. You know, so when when we look at something, you know, as the senator mentioned, take a look at, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, right? So you have candidate running for office, obviously very controversial. You know, November, ekes out a win. That's great. The runoff comes along. The highest drop-off that we saw in turnout was in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Now, the research that I've done says that the highest drop-off we saw among Republicans was among the strongest Trump supporters, the ones who voted for Trump but didn't vote for David Perdue, who supported Doug Collins over Kelly Loeffler. These are the individuals that, even beyond the primary, Republicans have to worry about. So while it's true that the primary is its first stage, right, that Republican candidates need to be concerned about, they also have to be worried about maintaining turnout and making sure that the most ardent kind of Trump backers, maybe those who subscribe to some of these theories like the QAnon, you know, story that Marjorie Taylor Greene has supported, that they need to make sure that those voters also show up to support Republican candidates in terms of voter turnout in the general election. So I think that that's the other part of this equation. It's not just the runoff. It's not just the primary. I mean, it's also about making sure that those individuals maybe have a little bit different political persuasion, a little more right wing, will show up in a general election as well. In my experience, Bill, and just from my observation, nothing will coalesce a party more than being out of power, out of the White House, and uh, criticizing uh, what uh, policies are being pushed in the White House. And I think, actually, we could see great unity within the Republican Party, disagreeing about some of the policies and agenda items from the Biden administration, and that that could really serve to uh, be a rallying point to turn out GOP base in 22. But Chuck, you are a perfect example of someone who has been able to, I don't know if adjust is fair, because I don't want to suggest that you're not completely sincere in the legislation that you work on, but you have certainly found a way to carve out a path in an increasingly blue district, as we said at the top of the show, that's allowed you to maintain your position in the General Assembly. And so um, it strikes me that you're more aligned with the Jeff Duncan camp than you are with the most extreme Donald Trump por- uh, uh, part of the party. What I'd say is I, throughout my career, I've been very consistent, and, and that is uh, fiscal conservatism, putting people over politics, focusing on on issues that really matter to voters, like criminal justice reform, which I've worked on for many years. It's something that voters really respond to regardless of your political party. And I think that Republicans have done actually a great job in Georgia of reflecting those values. That's why, despite the president losing, uh, former president losing the state, uh, Republicans did very well in state legislative races. Down ballot, the mm-hmm. Re- Republican Party has been <clears throat> quite strong in Georgia. And, and um, and I and I expect that that will continue based upon the policies that we're working on, uh, such as the repeal of citizens' arrest at the state capitol. Bernard, how do you how do you uh, uh, look at what what Chuck Estration just said? It's true, uh, Republicans did quite well in down ballot races across the state. Well, I, mean, I think we have to think about you know what do we mean by down ballot? Certainly, in state legislative elections, we saw you know, Democrats do quite poorly, not just in Georgia, but around the country. That has huge implications for things like redistricting. Uh, You know, big challenges remain there. But I think the narrative coming out of the November election was that this was a story about rejecting Donald Trump. 
was that there were suburban white voters in Metro Atlanta and around the country who were not willing to vote for Trump, but who would be willing to vote for Republicans, you know, for Senate, maybe for gubernatorial elections. And we have the runoff elections, right, which goes even worse in terms of the vote share that Republicans were able to get, right? Democrats win both of those seats. So I think we're talking here about, you know, perhaps at the state legislative level where there's less salience, where voters are not paying as much attention to what's going on, Republicans can find success. But at the end of the day, if, you know, down ballot means that far down the ballot, and we're talking about House and Senate races where, you know, Republicans are losing or hemorrhaging, frankly, white suburban voters, that's going to spell trouble for statewide elections and for these important offices in Georgia and around the country. Uh, Jen, just to add one layer to this conversation, which is that by the fall, you'll have a special session of the legislature to redraw the maps. Uh, and with a Republican-dominated legislature, it is likely that there will be pretty major uh, uh, muscle put behind making sure those districts, especially in legislative districts, continue to favor Republicans, yes? Yeah, I mean, that that is definitely, you know, a big concern. Um, but I'm also looking kind of at the federal level, too. You know, H.R. Uh, 1 actually has a provision in it for independent redistricting. Um, I think that would be good for everybody um, on both sides. I think that's why we are where we are because of the extreme gerrymandering and kind of the extreme partisanship um, where we don't have competitive races. Um, I would say that that's probably why um, Chuck is, is a better legislator because he has a competitive district. I think that you tend to be more in line with the people you represent um, when you know that you're actually, you know, going to have to run against real opposition in a general election. Yeah, it's a major concern, but that's, you know, in some ways, if, if they're able to kind of double down and reinforce those Republican districts, I mean, I think we're going to see um, Georgia looking more and more like North Carolina, where Democrats hold a lot of the statewide offices, um, while Republicans may still hold structural control of the House and the Senate. All right. There you go. Chuck Evstration, there's your first mail piece for your 22 re-election campaign. The quote is, Chuck Evstration, a better legislator, Jen Jordan, Democratic State Senator. <laughs> we got to take a break. We'll be right back with more. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> We've got a few minutes left on the show, and I want to explore at least one other quick legislative issue because we're going to be talking about it as we have for weeks now. Um, Jen Jordan, where do you see this raft of legislation uh, that would change primarily Georgia's absentee voting laws, mail-in voting laws, that uh, Republicans are pushing through the legislature and uh, that obviously are going to have some traction simply because the of the legislative majority? What, what, how much effort is there going to be by Democrats to stop some of these in their tracks, and which ones do you think Democrats have a chance of stopping? I mean, look, I, I don't I'm not necessarily sure any of them have any merit at this point. Um, I think the biggest ones are um, or the or, or the one that is, is really concerning is is doing away with no excuse absentee balloting, period. Um, I think that that I mean, that's just just seems ridiculous to me in the middle of the pandemic that we would do that. And not only that, but obviously so many more people participated in the process because of um, access to absentee ballots. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to be fighting all of them. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of sad because there really isn't a problem that they're trying um, to solve other than they're just trying to make it harder for certain people to vote. And, um, and I think that's a sad commentary. 
Chuck, the elimination of, of no-excuse absentee voting, of course, has co- uh, caused quite a stir. So has the notion of uh, eliminating automatic voter re- registration, which even Republicans uh, for a number of years touted as being a wonderful way to expand the voter base here. Uh, wh- where are you on these on these so-called reforms? The uh, First of all, the uh, governor, the Speaker of the House, and the Lieutenant Governor have all said that they do not support a repeal of no-excuse absentee uh, voting. So that's just not going to happen. That's um, uh, I, I think that the Senate Majority Leader is planning to announce an omnibus elections bill uh, today or this week. I expect that there's going to be a specific proposal out there, which can then be analyzed. Um, I, I expect that... Um, that debate is going to uh, happen here at the Capitol, really focused on what's the data and what and what's truly going on out there. Uh, disenfranchisement uh, is uh, not part of the uh, equation or calculation. Um, I'm also working on an ethics bill this year, which uh, which I'm very excited to to work on. And so I think that there's going to be some great legislation coming out of the state Capitol, but I don't I don't have any specific knowledge on any of the. Uh, election proposals uh, that, uh, you know, out, outside of there would be no repeal of no excuse absentee uh, ballots. Governor Kemp has uh, made it very clear he, he doesn't support that. So, Bernard, election security or voter suppression? Well, you know, it, with all due respect, right, I, I think that the, the bottom line is we know what's going on. There's no evidence of fraud. Republicans run elections in this state. Republicans hold all statewide offices. There's no evidence of you know, fraud that occurred in the runoff election and the November election, we just don't see it. So when we see proposals like eliminating no excuse absentee voting, which, you know, it seems like, um, you know, will not happen given where Republicans statewide align on that, but also things like requiring individuals to produce uh, identification twice in order to vote by mail, once when they apply and mail in a copy of their ID when they send in their ballot, you know, these proposals are not solving any real problems that exist. All they're doing is making it more difficult for individuals to vote. And while we can celebrate the high turnout that we saw in the runoff and in November 2020, we have to remember that still a third or more of eligible Georgians did not turn out to vote in both of those elections. So there's still a lot more work to do to expand the electorate. And that includes hundreds of thousands of Republican voters, Republicans, again, who didn't show up in the runoff, Another reason why Democrats hold both of the Senate seats. So all the discussion about making it more difficult to vote, any excuse based on voter fraud, just just really carries no weight when you look at the data, when you look at the facts on the ground. I disagree with the professor. I know that he's just moved to Georgia, but in 2018, the Democrats contested the outcome of the uh, election. Stacey Abrams at the time uh, did not concede, and uh, there were arguments made by Democrats that there were issues with the election. 2020, we all remember what just happened recently and questions by Republicans as to the election. So the questions are out there. The discussion is happening, and it's not just in one political party. It's on both sides of the political spectrum. And what we need is uh, Georgians to uh, feel confident in the outcome of elections, that that, uh, ser- that serves to benefit all voters and helps to ensure trust in our systems. Um, Jen, so, Chuck is certainly correct. Go, go ahead, Bernard, real quick, and I want to get Jen in here, too. I just want to respond real quick. You know, it's, it's a great point about the fact that, you know, in 2018, certainly there were questions about the process. Those questions were not about fraud. Those questions were about expanding access. And I think when a third of Georgians don't vote in these hotly contested elections in November and in the runoff, it's clear that some people are not voting even though perhaps they'd like to and they could. That's the thing that needs to be addressed more than this, you know, absence of fraud. Um, thank you for that. Jen, one quick note about Stacey Abrams, because certainly Republicans have made the point a, a number of times correctly that Stacey Abrams never did concede to Brian Kemp in 2018. But what she did do was to say, I acknowledge that I lost. She believed she lost. She went on to say because of uh, issues with who was disenfranchised in terms of voter rolls and that sort of thing. But she did, in fact, acknowledge she had lost the election. And I just want to make sure we say that. Jen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, every time we start talking about this, 
you know, there's this kind of like, well, what about Stacey Abrams? So the only thing I can say is that most of these bills that have been filed have their genesis in one of the, you know, misrepresentation untruths that were being pushed by Donald Trump. So we keep hearing that uh, the GOP wants to move forward. They want um, kind of to take this new path in terms of um, separating themselves from Trump. But when all they're doing is actually filing these bills to kind of keep pushing that narrative that there was fraud and um, and really undermining voters' trust in the system, um, you know, we're just taking two steps back. And it's clear that, you know, the GOP really isn't going to change anytime soon. So I don't think anyone on this panel today would... Uh, uh, deny the fact that these election issues, these voting issues, are without question the most uh, controversial uh, matters that the legislature is taking up this session. And of course, we'll watch as they continue to unfold. Um, we are out of time for today's show, I'm sorry to say, because I still got so many issues I'd love to talk with all of you about. But uh, with the time left, I want to say thank you very much to State Senator Jen Jordan. Appreciated having you here. Representative Chuck F. Stration, you as well. And Bernard Fraga, uh, what a great uh, chance to have you on the show this first time. I really hope you will come back and join our panel again to uh, talk with us about the issues as we move forward on Political Rewind. That's it for our show today. By the way, you know, I have uh, stopped talking about how much we like the small comforts that you send to us, and I really want to get back to reading some of yours on the air. There's a phone number you can use to call and record uh, your small comforts, 404-685-2426. I promise I want to get back to them because we need some small comforts in these continuingly difficult times. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a couple of masks. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>